You'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. We'd love for you to look at it to know that what we've got comes from God's Word. It's not Ben's opinion. Um, if you don't own one, you're welcome to keep it. If you'd like a nicer one, there's some nice ones in the back on the shelf that are leather and people leave here and you're welcome to take it because they haven't taken it. Over the last eight weeks, we've been in the book of Acts, considering the life of the disciples after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus was resurrected, after he appeared to many over 40 days and finally ascended into heaven. If you wonder more about that time period, you can read it in 1 Corinthians 15. And in his final words in the book of Acts, Jesus says this to his disciples, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we moved from chapter 1 into chapter 2, we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, come in like a mighty rushing wind and rest on the disciples like tongues of fire, just as Jesus had told His disciples He would come. He told them that they would receive power, and they did. You'll remember in Acts 2, Peter begins to preach. We looked at him two weeks ago as an example of the empowered life. You can watch him as you move through the Gospels, go from a guy who knew Jesus and believed in Jesus to a man who had incredible power, and I believe the power was not derived from his experience, from his training, but rather from the Holy Spirit. We looked at him as the example of the empowered life. The difference that the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. And last week we looked at the end of Acts 2, at the empowered community. You'll note this word, empowered It's going to keep showing up. We've called our series Empowered. Why? Because we believe you have been given power because the Bible says you have. And so we looked at Acts 2 at the Empowered Community. What does it look like when a bunch of people who have heard the Gospel, who have believed the Gospel, and have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, these are Paul's words from Ephesians 1.13, what does a community of people look like that gather together for the purpose and the mission of God around the power of the Holy Spirit. So Acts testifies to us that this early church, this empowered community, were committed to God's Word and to fellowship. That they gathered together to study the Word of God, that they shared meals together and prayed for one another. And as I commented last week, we at Calvary have the same model of ministry, and this is where we got it from. That as a church on Sundays, we gather together to hear God's Word preached. That's why I point you to your Bibles. If you got one, bring it. Because we want you to always see that it's God's Word that's going forth. And I kid you not, if you ever find something or hear something from me, you go, that's not from the Bible... God's Word contradicted what you said. Please bring it up. That is your job. 
And I'm not an infallible human. So we preach God's Word. We gather together around God's Word. And then we call you to join a community group so that you could experience this fellowship of the early church of sharing together and having meals together and praying together, knowing and being known. That was the power of this early community. The power that Luke describes in Acts 2.42. And in the very next verse, he writes this, Acts 2.43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Last week we alluded to the awe that came on every soul. And we mentioned the signs and the wonders that God was using to confirm the work of the Holy Spirit and to testify to this ministry of the gospel going out. And if you heard and you wondered what it looked like, Luke gives you this example in the first 11 verses of chapter 3, and that's where we're going to camp out this morning. Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Luke makes a shift from summarizing statements back into narrative, and he sets the tone by giving us a scene. It's the ninth hour. Now, culturally speaking, that'd be around three o'clock. As in those days, as with my daughter Claire, the day begins at 6 a.m. So Peter and John head out together around three. And we have to keep in mind that Jesus had trained these disciples to go out in twos. He always did. He always sent them out two by two, so it shouldn't be surprising that they still travel that way. And Peter, likely the oldest disciple, is paired with John, likely the youngest disciple. And the two of them head to the temple at one of the main times at which people might be gathering. Now the text doesn't tell us whether these two were going to pray. And they very well could have been. Or they could be going with the intention to share Jesus. And in fact, as we lean in, I'm going to express to you that these disciples, everywhere they went, as they went through their normal lives, were always willing to take the time and the opportunity to talk about Jesus. We'll see that here in a moment. Luke continues in verse 2. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they'd laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now this is not an unusual scene in ancient times, neither is it in ours. That people in need would ask for help. People would come, people would go, and if you could find a place where particularly religious people were coming and going, you're probably far more likely to do fine. So here this guy sits, probably brought along by some family members so that he might beg. Something, according to the text, that he's been doing for a long time as the text testifies that he does this daily, that this is his ritual, to come and regularly ask for help. And at the temple, he's going to find a Jewish people who are probably going to typically be fairly generous. The Old Testament makes several references to giving alms to the poor, so you can expect 
he's expecting to walk out with a pretty good take on a day like today. And Luke continues in verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, which by the way suggests that that's why they're there, that they've come in to pray, to worship God, he asked to receive alms. Let's pause for a second. How many times have you been on your way into a store or into work and someone is standing there with a sign? Something that reads something like, please help, I'm out of work. We'll work for food. You can imagine the signs, they only get creative from there. But this is the situation that Peter and John find themselves in. And I want us to at least think through that scenario for a moment. To imagine ourselves, because I think the Bible speaks to that moment, if only a little bit. Verse 4, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. They look at this guy and say, look at us. And he, the man, fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Before we go on, there's something that we have to notice here. Something that we need to take note of. Because the man asked them for something. But if you follow the text and take it for its word, the man never actually looks at them. So Peter and John step into that. They call him out and say, look at us. And so he looks intently, ready to receive something. And this is what I want us to garner from this moment, because this is the first meaningful thing that happens in this text, is that Peter and John take an intentional moment to dignify a lame man. Now, if we were to continue reading, we'll find in chapter 4 that this guy is over 40 years old, a, a fact that you know the Bible includes, and so I give it to you. So if you put together some details from this guy's life, from the text, you have a man lame from birth who's over 40, which means he's probably done this for a very long time. That he's probably never been able to provide for himself. That his existence has, has been around taking scraps and handouts from those passing by. You can only imagine what this has done to his self-worth, to his self-esteem, to his ability or willingness to contribute to society. He begs and has been his whole life. And so Peter and John look into his eyes. And friends, I don't intend to tell you to give money to people asking for it. But as believers in Jesus Christ, they do want us to see this. Because what Peter and John do here is they dignify the man. They don't just walk by him in awkwardness. They don't just ignore his existence, pretending that he's not an image bearer of the king. No, they step into it a little bit. And it's in this moment that I'd remind you of the message that Danny Lukey preached two months ago when Jesus says, whatever you do to the very least of these, you do unto me. 
If you weren't here on that week, I'd suggest you pick it up off our podcast. Because we are called as believers that when we see somebody, to treat them like Christ. Whatever you've done to the very least of these, my brothers, that you've done unto me. So this challenge exists for us that when you walk by somebody, it's not an inconvenience. It's not somebody there to make you feel weird. It's a chance to encounter an image bearer of Christ. Someone who deserves to be shown the love of God the Father. And I'm not telling you to put money in their hands. That's a whole different conversation for a whole different day. And is entirely situational. But we can't rob people of their dignity and continue to let people live feeling like they're less than God would have them. So Peter and John set a tremendous example for us and something to take into consideration. Something that might cause tension in our lives. Something that might create awkward moments for us. But that's okay. We can handle it, right? And in fact, if you need a line, they'll give you one here in verse 6. Peter says, I have no silver and gold. I've got no money. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, if you are one who writes in your Bible, I want you to underline two things here. One, but what I do have, I give to you. And two, in the name of Jesus. Because what you have is Jesus. And this is a way better line than I don't carry cash. And I think even if Peter had a couple of ones in his pocket, he still gave them the most important thing in the world. Because as we've progressed in the book of Acts, from the empowered life, looking at the Holy Spirit coming and giving you power, and I mean that literally, that if you've believed in Jesus, you've literally been given power, and we looked at the empowered community. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit gathers and puts this community together? And this morning we're looking at the empowered message. Because the message of the New Testament could be summarized in one word, and it's Jesus. It's the most important thing you could ever offer someone. It's the most valuable thing you could ever give someone. And it's just about the easiest thing you could offer. Jesus. Do you see here the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? Because this is where we lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we don't, we're going to be tempted to think that it's about me. That it's about me being smart enough, or sneaky enough, or well-versed, or well-studied, possibly holy enough, probably righteous enough, maybe I need the right pedigree, or any other lame excuse we can come up with, We think in those moments, we got to have the right answers. And all of that takes away from the Holy Spirit. 
Friends, it's not you that's called to be at work. It's the Holy Spirit that's at work. You step into this, like Peter and John, making yourself available and speaking the name of Jesus. Because it's the name of Jesus spoken with the power of the Holy Spirit and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that has an impact here. It's the name of Jesus that's significant. Now, I'm not trying to tell you or suggest to you that every time you come across a homeless man, you should say Jesus and he'll be healed. Or that you'll say Jesus and someone will come to faith. No, that's the Holy Spirit at work. But I am trying to help us see that Peter and John made themselves available. They had a place to go. In fact, they had a time to be there. They had a plan. You have no idea what they tried to get done after temple time. We do know that they paused. And they dignified a man that the world had not dignified. And they gave him the most valuable thing they could offer. Jesus. And that's just as true for them as it is for us, that the most valuable thing we have is Jesus. And should you take that lightly, let me affirm to you that Jesus is the most significant thing we have. Friends, if you don't believe that, you think way too much of yourselves. Because when you found Jesus, you weren't incomplete, you weren't broken. You weren't almost there. You didn't need your cup filled. According to the Scriptures, you were dead. You weren't drowning. You weren't struggling. You weren't suffering. You were dead. And Jesus gave you life. Real life. Real breath. He replaced your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Jesus is the most powerful thing we have. It's the only reason why we gather. And the only merit I have to stand before you is Jesus. So we need to lean into that. Because the man asking for help on the street needs Jesus. And the neighbor borrowing a tool needs Jesus. And the lady in the drive through window needs Jesus. And our coworkers need Jesus. And our families need Jesus. And we can never take that tritely or lightly. Because when we do, we miss the fact that people around us are dead and need new life. And Peter dignifies this man By looking into his eyes, treating him as human, treating him as an image bearer, and then gave him something far more significant or valuable than what he was seeking. And so Luke continues writing. And he took him up by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Friends, this is a testimony of belief and the power of the name of Jesus. 
that this man was raised up, that he did not need rehab, he didn't need physical therapy. And with Jesus, don't miss this, because minutes before this, he didn't have the muscles in his legs to even stand up, let alone the ability to stand. This is not a guy who lost his ability to stand. This is a guy who'd never stood before. So not only does he stand, but he walks, and later he'll celebrate. And if we make this just about physical healing, we'll miss the point. Because one of the reasons these moments exist in Scripture is to show you a complete healing that while physical is also spiritual. And when we look at our own lives, Jesus can heal us in deep and real ways completely and to the fullest. And he continues in verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Friends, this testifies to his complete and absolute healing. Remembering, of course, that Luke writes this. People would have seen this. They would have watched it. And we'll see that in this next part of the passage. We'll finish reading it. Verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Notice that. Almost everyone in Jerusalem would have known this beggar because he'd sat there for such a long time. Pick up on this. Jesus probably walked by this guy on several occasions in and out of the temple. And yet God had a plan for him. A plan to bring him to salvation and a plan to give him complete healing. And there would have been no doubt from anyone what had happened. Because the city watched him as a beggar and the city watched him as a celebrator. So friends, as we step into this Acts 3 passage. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to have to lean into it a little bit. Because next week, Peter's going to preach about it when being asked for it. And then he's going to be arrested for it and have to pay the price for it. And we'll wander into Acts 4. But there's two things here that we can't move past too quickly. And this is the first. It's the name of Jesus. It's Jesus that brings healing and Jesus that brings salvation. It's not crafty arguments. It's not well-thought questions. It's not the perfect situation. I used to believe in my heart of hearts that when you were talking to somebody and it was time to ask a question about Jesus or ask somebody a spiritual question, like, like right behind them, the heavens would open up and angels would appear and be like, then it's time. Or like there'd be a holy nudging and it'd be like, click, click, do it. I used to wait for those perfect situations to tell somebody about Jesus and friends, they don't exist. Every time and every moment can be a right time to speak His name. 
And in those situations, we have to believe in the power of His name. We have to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we look for the right situations, we believe it's the right situations that save. Or if we wait for a right question, we believe that it's right questions that save. Or if we believe we have to have the answers first, we're going to think it's those answers that are going to save when in fact, it's Jesus who saves. That we're just called to lean into that to preach Jesus. This week I was reading an article out of the state of Texas from a liberal Baptist denomination. The pastor was writing with a major confession. It was a really challenging article. Basically writing that he had spent the last part of his life preaching for about 20 years, and he acknowledged in the first part of his article that I'm far more likely to quote the New York Times, I'm far more likely to quote People Magazine, I'm far more likely, and he went on to name five or six other articles, than I am to quote the Bible. Because I want people to understand what's going on, and I've pushed people in my church to understand all these situations and all these scenarios because I've always wanted them to have the right response and the right cultural attitude. said, a man came up to me and invited me to lunch and said, what is different from us and every other societal institution? Because as I look at us and I look at these other organizations that are making the same claims as we are, what is the difference between us and them? And this exceptionally liberal pastor took a while to ponder it. And he came up with a one-word answer. Jesus. And this man who took him to lunch said, exactly. And that's the guy we should be talking about every week. And he began to talk in his article about how he's moved his focus away from all these liberal issues and onto Jesus. And the impact that that was beginning to have in their church. And friends, we need to celebrate that. Now, we probably don't agree with everything else that church espouses, but the fact that they came around to saying, wait, Jesus is the most important thing. And friend, even in our conservative church, Jesus is the most important thing. He's the only thing we had to point to. He's the only thing we put our hope in. It's Jesus who saves. It's Jesus who transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's Jesus who moved me from death unto life. Friends, never, ever, ever underestimate Jesus. And finally, I want us to consider the life of this now well man. This man who is now walking. This man who is now leaping. This man who is now praising God. Because he does so because he has the most valuable thing anyone could have. He has Jesus. And now he worships because of what Jesus has done in his life. That he has been moved from death into life. And friends, we can never move past this. We have Jesus. Therefore, church, we ought to do a whole lot more leaping. We ought to do a whole lot more celebrating. We ought to do a whole lot more praising God because whether our old life was five years ago, five minutes ago, or 70 years ago, we were dead and He saved us. 
And that's always miraculous. From time to time, I talk to a Christian who tells me, well, I've got a lame testimony. God didn't do anything in my life. Wish I'd have done drugs or something. Friends, when we say or even think things like that, realize that we're negating serious biblical and theological truths. It doesn't matter whether you stole horseshoes or hand grenades. The fact is, you were dead. And the miracle is, you were saved. It doesn't matter what He pulled you from. That's an insignificant detail compared to salvation. You were dead and you were are alive. That's the miracle. That's the emphasis of our testimony for Jesus Christ. That's what we put on display in our lives. And that's what this man put on display. Because I want you to look at verse 10. They, this is talking about the city, were filled with wonder and amazement. Why? Why? Because they'd watched that man beg for the better part of 40 years. And they saw what Jesus had done in his life. They knew who he was. They saw the change. And it caused them to worship. Friends, we cannot be ashamed of our old lives. Not that we want to participate in the deeds of our old lives, but there's a reality that if God in His saving mercy has saved us from it, that there's a testimony there that bears noting that Jesus saves us and changes us and He's still at work in us. Friends, this is the empowered message of the book of Acts. Jesus Christ saves. That's all we need. Friends, when you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit and you received power. You were called to live in the community of the empowered that you might know and be known and you were called to speak the message of power, the name of Jesus And don't forget, like we talked about three weeks ago, the Holy Spirit has two testimonies. First, to point me to Jesus. And secondly, to use me to point others to Jesus. And that's what shows up here in the text. First, through Peter being called to Jesus and pointing others to Jesus. And then through the lame man who's called to Jesus and points other people to Jesus. And now is expressed into you as you've been called to be pointed to Jesus and point others to Him as well. That's an empowered life. Let me pray for us. Father, we give thanks for your son Jesus, that whose death paid the price for my sin. Father, for I truly was dead. I don't often think in those terms. In fact, in my flesh, I like to think I was doing okay. But Father, the theological reality is I was dead, and if I dig more into my past, Father, I can see death all through it when your Son opened up life to me, that I might know you, the only true God, and know your Son who died on the cross on my behalf and on our behalf, that we might know you. Thank you so much for sending your Spirit 
who still works to point us to Christ. And I still need to be pointed to Jesus. Father, for all the times that I think it's about me or or choose things that are less than what You'd have for me, Father, I pray that You would still use Your Spirit to point me to Christ. Father, as we walk around this city and we engage people wherever You'd call us to walk, will You give us the ability to and the time to just pause, to dignify people, and to let the Holy Spirit work? It's not about us having the right answers. It's not about us having the right questions. Father, it's about trusting You and speaking Your name. Father, we just entrust that to You. And we're thankful that You work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.